Today we're going to come to the end of 1 Corinthians as we enter into chapter 16. But I have to tell you something. If you don't understand the gospel, this text makes absolutely no sense. We live in a world where, where we are told that it's about what we can do. Right? It's to do, 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 to try to impress, to try to get, to try to elevate your position. And the lost in the world live a life of decades and decades of the Lord so chooses of doing and doing and doing and doing. And the difference between us and the lost is we live a life based on the fact that it is done. We don't live a life to try to impress God. We live a life knowing that with us through faith in Christ, God is well pleased with us. Y'all with me there? Y'all a bunch of dirty, rotten, good for nothing sinners. Saved by grace through faith. There is nothing in you that is good. The only good that comes out of you is because Christ has saved you and reconciled you and the Holy Spirit dwells in you. And until you can fully grasp the magnitude of our sin and separation, you can't see the grace, love, and mercy of God and how much He loves us so you can understand the fullness of the gospel. Okay? So what, when I mention all this, because what we're going to look at today are principles. Principles of what it means to walk in in relationship with God in increasing measure to have the joy he intends. But you must see these not as things to do to be right with God, but things to do out of a motivation of understanding that it is done. Everybody tracking with me so far? All right. So 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty eight, and we'll go through sixteen twelve. Now understand, this is the 32nd sermon in our series through 1 Corinthians. That means when we started this, everybody was about a year younger. Bob had more hair. His haircut still costs the same, though. But I trust that through this series that that the Lord has allowed us to to know him more fully, to be better equipped to walk in his will, to have a greater joy in understanding who we are in Christ and what all this means in very practical ways. So as we look at this, let me read it to you. And and you'll see initially as we read it, you'll get a huh. The last chapter of an epistle is, is often a huh moment. Paul's kind of tidying up loose ends. But then we'll slow down and unpack, and I'll show you these principles here. So I'll start in 1558. It says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Now, concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they'll accompany me. I will travel, I'm sorry, I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia. And perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want you to, I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you, to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Now you're probably all like, huh? What's, what does this have to do with anything, right? 
Well, you just take that and go figure it out. I had to do it this week. You can do it too. It can seem rather pointless what you just read there. It's a lot of abstract facts. He's, he's saying, you know, take up this collection for the needy people in Jerusalem. I want to come and hang out with you. We'll see if that's possible. I'm going to send Timothy. Be nice to him. I told Apollos to come. He said he didn't want to come. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. But if you slow down and look at this text a little bit, and understand that chapter breaks are not divinely inspired. Do you know what I mean by that? You see, see Big 16 right there? God didn't put Big 16 there. These things used to come, and actually if you read them in Greek, there's not spacing. If you really want to have fun trying to see where the breaks are. But these are not divinely inspired breaks. Sometimes the flow from the previous chapter continues in the new chapter, and I think that's what we have here. And that's why I started in 58, because it seems so clear to go from 58 down to 13 as a cohesive unit. So watch this. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Abounding. See that word right there? Do you know what abounding means? You don't know what it means. It makes the text a little bit awkward. Abounding means, you ready for this? To overdo it. So, you take what you think you should be doing, and you go and go and go and go and go, and when you think you can't go anymore, you keep going more, and then you go and you go and you go, and that's how we should labor in the Lord. Now, remember what I said when we started. It's important to understand, we don't abound to be right with God. We abound out of gratitude that we are right with God. If you abound to be right with God, you will grind yourself down to a joyless oblivion. You see that? But if you abound out of joy and gratitude, it is a delightful sacrificing of self for the Lord. You know, give your lives as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to the Lord. That's, that's abounding. So the world tells us, go work, gain, merit, prove yourself worthy. Yeah? Isn't that how the world lives? Go work, gain, merit, prove yourself worthy. God tells us, go rest in Christ. He's already done it. All that's left is to believe and to trust. Do you see the difference? The world, they have this rat race. They, they have to gain the acceptance of others. They want position and prestige and acknowledgement. And they want, they want man to say, with you, I am so well pleased. You're so impressive, you know? Little kids, they don't want to grow up to be the garbage man. Well, they do until they're five. Then their parents convince them that they want to be the president. Because if you're the president, when you walk in a room, a marching band plays. Now, that's got to be pretty cool. And people look at you and take pictures of you. And you're on the news all the time. And, wow, I must be pretty special. Well, you know how many people become president in their lifetime? Do the math. And if you ever, ever talk to one of these former presidents, they're not going through life with marching bands when they come out of office. In fact, some of them have, have ended their time on this planet fairly miserably because power and recognition in the world's sense is not really what it's all hyped up to be. But you and I as Christians, we may not walk through a room with a marching band playing, but when we came to faith, there was a big party in heaven because God was so pleased. God says, I'll counsel you with my eye upon you. He loves us. Do you see the difference here? So God says to us, rest in Christ. He's already done it. And our job now is to obey and trust. And here's the rub. How many of us go through life as functional deists? You know what a functional deist is? We know facts about God, but he's a distant being, right? How often have you gone through life and you haven't seen God work very clearly and directly in your life, but you know he's very real and you've trusted in him? Do you see where I'm going there? 
Have you ever had those moments where God has intervened in such a way that you say, wow, that's freaky. You ever have one of those moments? It's really not quite freaky. It's how it's supposed to be. But what we do is we tend to isolate ourselves in trusting in false hopes when God's calling us to abound. And he calls us to abound, not to grind us down. He calls us to abound because it's how we live. Jesus doesn't say, get that yoke off of your shoulders and find an Adirondack chair. It's comfortable in there. He says, take my yoke upon you. It is easy. The burden is light, but we're still pulling a yoke. So watch this. Abounding. It means to go way, 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 way past what we think we should do in our labor for the Lord. It says right here in 1558, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Why do we abound? First, it's what God calls us to do. So if you trust he knows what he's talking about, you abound. You say that's hard. It's actually impossible on your own. But through him who gives you strength, Paul says, when I am weak, then I am strong. So he's a part of the paradoxical living as a Christian. You must die to self to truly live. Who really wants to die to yourself? But if you want to have joy, you've kind of got to do it, don't you? So we abound in obedience. Second, we understand that we abound so that we can live the lives God made us to live. God desires for us to have life abundantly. John 10, listen to this. John 10, verse 9, Jesus says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. So what does Jesus want for you? To be miserable? He wants, Jesus wants to micromanage and overwork you until you can't take it anymore, right? He's like a cruel boss. Anyone ever have a cruel boss? I used to work for a lady. She would show up at work at about 9.30. I had to get there at 6 o'clock to get stuff done before my bosses all arrived. Well, she had some, some things going on in her life that caused her to become a, a workaholic in the evenings. So if anyone left before 7 or 8 at night, she would be irate. And if you made one little mistake on your work, she would become irate. And she'd call you in the office, and she would just berate you. And she was a nasty, miserable micromanager, and I couldn't stand working for her. And sometimes don't we think that's what God is like? He's like, oh, I saw what you did. Get over here, and let's talk about it. You, you dirty rum. No. God loves us so much that often he notices the things that we don't do. And you know what he does? He just does it, takes care of it for us. Think of how many times in your life grace has covered a multitude of sins, not only in what Christ has done initially, but after that. Think of what God's will is for you. This is why we abound, but stick with me here. We also abound as we reflect upon what God has done. Did God kind of just go a little bit, the bare minimum necessary for us? Did, did Jesus kind of just give us a little bit of grace? Did he show us just, just, just a little bit of love? Or, or did he abound? Read, read the scriptures. Look, look at all the reference to abounding in steadfast love. Not you and me, the Lord. Abounding in steadfast love. His steadfast love going way, 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 way beyond where it should have. What we deserve. Okay? I'll give you an example, and then we're going to dig into this. Philippians 2. Flip your Bibles over there. We'll spend a minute. Philippians chapter 2. The beginning of Philippians chapter 2, not exactly right at the beginning, but in verse 5 is this wonderful little section that we'll read on our way to the end of chapter 2. Have this in mind among yourselves, verse 5, which is yours in Christ Jesus. 
Listen to this. You want to hear abounding, abounding in action. Watch Christ abounding. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. That's called going full tilt, full throttle, way overboard. No? What would you say? One will scarcely die for a righteous person, the Bible tells us. But perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's abounding in grace and love and mercy. But keep working your way down chapter 2. Kids often have posters up on their walls. Not in my house because I can't ever seem to get the poster putty ordered. But a lot of kids have posters on their walls. And they typically put people that that they want to emulate, that they want to be like. Right? So you might get a Michael Jordan poster. See, I'm dating myself, but we used to have the ones with his arms outstretched holding the basketballs, or, or uh, some musician, or some politician, or you put something up on your wall. You ever see the, the poster for Epaphroditus in any kids' rooms? You all have no idea who Epaphroditus is, I'm sure, do you? Do you ever think, you know, as an adult, when I grow up, I want to be like Epaphroditus? We have no idea who Epaphroditus is, but Epaphroditus is a man who abounded in his work for the Lord in such an extreme way. But I guarantee you, when you meet Epaphroditus one day, he's not going to say, oh man, that stunk. He's going to delight in what he did because it brought glory to God. Well, look at this in verse 25. Paul says, I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. So the dude got sick. He was concerned. He wasn't concerned he was sick. He was concerned people would be worried about him because he was sick. You know how he got sick? It says, indeed, he was ill, near death, but God has had mercy on him. And not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor. Such men, for he nearly died, watch this, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, follow this, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Do you catch what almost killed him? He was abounding in his work for the Lord and it almost killed him. What a waste to die working for the Lord, right? I mean, he could have died prematurely. Mm. He went so full tilt, full throttle, Picking up the slack other people were leaving there, abounding in the work for the Lord that he almost died. Now that's abounding. Now is Epaphroditus crazy working himself to death for the Lord? Or was he thinking, maybe Paul even spoke to him once, abound in your work for the Lord because in the Lord your labor will never be in vain. What are you working for in your life? What, what is the end game? What is it you're after? Fame, fortune, reputation, except what is, what is it you're There's always something that drives why we do what we do. Why do you get up and, and go to work? Well, to pay the bills. Why do you want to pay the bills so I can keep the house? Why do you, you, you got to keep following it, following it till you get to the end of the trail. And what motivates why you do what you do? Is it self? Is it an idol? Or is it the glory of the Lord? And here's what we find is freedom and joy comes in working for the glory of the Lord. And Paul shows us a few principles of how. Now take these carefully. Maybe these will be an encouragement to you. Maybe these will be a challenge to you. But don't you dare see these as a checklist of legalistic items that you need to be doing so that God loves you, because God loves you in Christ. You understand that? 
God loves you not by what you do, but what Christ has done in your place. The Lord's delight, and we're going to transition into a series in the Ten Commandments, which will actually pick up on this in greater detail. The Lord's delight, like the midweek thought said this week, Torah, the law, his delight is that we would have an intimacy of relationship with him, so he wants to remove anything that stands in between that intimacy of relationship with him. He doesn't ask your opinion on what you think stands in the way he lovingly tells us. Now watch this. 16.1. Got to go back to 1 Corinthians. He says, verse, first four verses. Concerning the collection of the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do on the first day of the week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up, as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. Ready? Abound in giving. It's the American way. Abound in giving. You know, that is how I can attest to this as a pastor and as a Christian, that abounding in giving is a joint of delight for all of us, right? You all awake with me? Because if you're honest, the heads go like this. You ever wonder why the Lord speaks so much about money in Scripture? You ever wonder? Because of the deceitfulness of riches. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, and we all love us some evil, apparently. The American church struggles, just as every other church in the whole world struggles, with trusting in the idol of money. And God loves us so much. This is what's the paradoxical aspect of God. Read through Proverbs. Right? Read through Scripture. The Lord will say, our, our desire should be give me neither riches nor poverty. How many, how many people prepare to go out vocationally? Yeah, you're in an interview. I'm looking for a job. You're not going to pay me too much or pay me too little. You know, just, just the right amount, so I'll be dependent on them. Right? Is that why we go to college? To find a media. When I grow up, I want to be in middle management. Well, if the Lord has a desire for you to be in middle management, you should be in middle management. Right? The Lord tells us, pray today, give me my daily bread. He's putting us in a position where he's able to show us how much he loves us and how wonderfully he'll provide for us. And as he does, he often blesses us in ridiculous ways so we can enjoy the gifts he wants to entrust to us. So watch this. You have to look at this closely. Not that closely, but you have to slow down to see it. And as I looked at this, I was wondering, remember we've been through Corinthians, 15 15, uh, chapters, and we've seen a church trying to shipwreck itself in all sorts of ways, right? I wonder how many Christians... And fortunately and unfortunately, we all live collectively. You know, our actions affect one another's actions. We're not islands in a stream. What was that, Kenny Rogers song? I'm not going to sing here. My actions will affect you and your actions will affect me, whether you like it or not, for good or for bad, because the Lord has knit us together. When one member suffers, all suffer. When one rejoices, all, all rejoice, unless we want to live in blatant sin and have nothing to do with one another. But I wonder how many Christians and how many churches have shipwrecked or disqualified themselves by not abounding in giving as the Lord calls us to. I wonder how many opportunities to rejoice in what the Lord would desire to do are lost because we failed to abound. I wonder how many relationships with the Lord lack intimacy because we trust in the deceitfulness of riches and not in the one who owns a cattle on a thousand hills. I get it, though. You see, the poor witness of the church is too often it becomes a, a business to generate revenue. Shame. The Lord does not need revenue. Jesus is not sitting in heaven going, oh, I have these great plans, but if these people would just give me some cash, I can get things done. Come on, Holy Spirit, would you get down there and motivate some people? I need some money. Jesus doesn't need anything from you. 
The Lord's will will be done, but he invites us into his work. Now watch what Paul says here. We'll put it in context. Remember back in Pentecost in the early portion of Acts, the Holy Spirit came, people spoke in tongues, and thousands of people came to faith. Well, they couldn't actually go back home and go to a church where they came from. Do you know why? There was one church, the church of Jerusalem. So these thousands of people, they stayed in Jerusalem. We have baby believers. They need to be cared for and discipled. Well, they didn't have ATM cards back then. They couldn't wire money to the first church of Jerusalem. They didn't even have savings accounts, to tell you the truth. So do you know how these people ate and were cared for and provided? You ever think about that? Imagine if we had 3,000 people come in, and they came from a, from a foreign land, and then we had to house them and feed them and care for them in our very practical ways. Who's paying for that? Hmm? I don't think for a moment the Lord didn't prepare them perfectly for this, but it put a bit of a financial strain. And then after that, in short order, more people began to come to faith in Jerusalem. There's still only one church, so they're hanging out there, and the majority of people who would come to faith would be poor. Read the scriptures, see who's primarily attracted, right? It's harder for a rich person. So now you've got multitudes of poor people from distant lands having to be cared for by this small little core group of believers. And as you read Tracts, you see that people were hungry, and they were angry, and they were sleeping in the streets, and they were miserable, right? Or did it say that no one had any need? Do you see that? Do you know what they did in Acts? They abounded in giving. Now watch this. So Paul, when he would go on these missions trips to the Gentile world, he would, and you'll see it all through Scripture, he would take up an offering from the Gentiles to bring back to the saints in Jerusalem, to care for the poor saints and the needs of the church back in Jerusalem. And he would not just take this offering with him, he would take believers with him so they could give their own offering as an act of love and gratitude, as brothers and sisters in faith. Do you see that? So that's what's going on. So Paul says to them, listen up, guys. On the first day of the week, I want you to set aside, well, concerning this collection for the saints, that's what that is. I directed the churches of Galatia, so I'll also direct you, he's saying. On the first day of the week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collection when I come. Watch this. First day of the week is what day? Sunday. And what he's saying is, as we abound in the work of the Lord, we are supposed to allow the Lord to speak to us and direct us in what he desires for us to give. Now, I'll tell you this error that I was taught, okay? You have this, this 10% goal you work after called the tithe. Does someone want to show me where that comes from in here? Because we'll be here a long time. Nowhere in the Old Testament nor the New Testament will you find a 10% tithe commanded and mandated by the Lord. Now you're like, yeah! We won't stop there. I'll tell you where it comes from. The Old Testament, there was this thing called the Levitical tax, 10% tax that you gave, you were to give, commanded under obligation before the Lord to the Levites for the functioning of their ministry. The problem, though, is there was another 10% tax called a festival tax that you were commanded by mandate by the Lord to give to the temple. And every three years, there was a 10% poor tax that you were commanded by law to give to the temple for the care of the poor. Then there was gleaning issues. When you harvested your field, you weren't allowed to harvest the corners, and whatever fell, you had to leave. That was called profit sharing. So you do a little bit of math, and all of a sudden, your legal mandate is around 30%. Whoa, whoa, whoa. You see how God's messing where he shouldn't mess, folks? Now, on top of that roughly 30%, now you get into the free will offering, right? Now, you know all the Israelites died in poverty, and, and, and that's just how their life ended? No. But we look at this as, as Christians today. 
And we try to find a legalistic out. What's the bare minimum I can get away with? The Lord says, abound. You say, but I'll starve. Talk to the Macedonians, 2 Corinthians 8. They didn't starve. I can give you a percentage if you want from Scripture. Do you want to see the percentage of abounding and giving? You sure you want to see it? There was this poor widow, she came to the temple. Remember what percent she gave? 100%. Jesus says, no, honey, your decimal point is off. Shift it to the left. Is that what Jesus said? Now, listen to this, my friends. And, and this is an area, if you're anything like me, it's a struggle. Could you imagine if Jesus said, hey, let me have 100%. Mm. Mm. Now, why would he say that? It's because he wants you to starve to death? Now, Jesus does not command you to give 100%. He commands you to abound in giving, to be right with him, Mm-mm. to have the joy he desires for you to give, to, to give, to have. So Paul says the first day of the week. So I was taught 10% is your goal to work up to there, and you should come up with an amount, and you should set that amount, and each week you just kind of write that same amount or pull that same cash and stick it in the box. Well, here's the problem that I, I ran into down, down the line, and you can see it here. Where's the Holy Spirit able to work there? You know, if, if we're doing straight math, you know, if you have $1,000, what's 10% of $1,000? It's 100, right? Boom, you don't need the Holy Spirit, you need a calculator. Well, what happens if the Holy Spirit may be desiring to say to you, hey, move the decimal point, buddy, right? And what if, what if God says, move the, see, and you get this experience, it frightens you, and you're good for about a week, and then you regress to the old way. But where the Lord prompts you to give way more than you feel like you should be giving, and then you see the Lord return the favor back to you in unique ways, and you're like, wow! And then you go, you're good for a whole week, and then you just regress back. Or other times when, when you move that decimal point a couple more places to the left, right? Such that you don't even need to show up. And then the Lord loves you enough to, to rebuke you over time. But this is what's going on. And, and watch this. On the first day of the week, we're to set aside an amount, not just to meet basic needs, but to go way, 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 way beyond. So that like here, when Paul shows up, he doesn't have to say, hey, let's take an offering today for the poor saints in Jerusalem. You know why? It's already there, the Holy Spirit. How, how cool is that if the Holy Spirit has already delivered the amount that is needed for the saints? You see, then you say, well, this isn't so clever. This is God working here. Do you, do you ever think of that? Now, we've had situations where, where, frighteningly so, there's been a need. And unsolicited, the Holy Spirit has provided for that need through people. It's freaky. But it's awesome because you rejoice in seeing how the Lord is working. So here's the first principle. Abound in giving. You want a percentage? I do too. We're legalists at heart. There's no percentage. You don't have to give anything. But you're robbing yourself of the joy that God desires for you. The nut and bolt answer is, take how much you want to give, and then keep going. It's called abounding, right? Put yourself on the line, trust in God, see what he does. There's no percentage from Scripture, not in the Old Testament or the New Testament. Giving should be the principles we have are sacrificial, generous, and seen as an investment in eternity. Determined by the leading of the Holy Spirit. Now, you don't have to. But do you want to have the joy of living relationally with God? Of seeing Him work in your life? Those who are faithful with little will be entrusted with a little bit more over time. It's called an awkward paraphrase of Scripture. Right? The Lord doesn't need our money. But he invites us into relationship with him. Keep going here in 1 Corinthians 16. The next thing, abounding in planning. Verse 5. 
Paul says, I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I'll stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I don't want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend time with you if the Lord permits. Paul was a planner. Did you know that? Paul didn't sit under a sycamore tree. That was somebody else. He didn't sit under a sycamore tree and just pray and read his Bible. I think sometimes people think that's what like a relationship with God is about. Let's just get in quiet and, and pray. And there are times when that's appropriate. But Paul was a man on the move. He was forever moving, forever preaching, forever discipling, forever seeking to reach the lost and build up the saints. And he was planning, right? He was, I'm going here, I'm going there, I'm taking him, we're doing this, I'm going to the synagogue, I'm going to the Areopagus, I'm discipling this person. He was, he was a planning man. People say, if you don't plan, you plan to fail. Ah, I don't know, that's not from Scripture, maybe some truth to it. But how about you, how about me, how about us? Are we abounding in planning our work for the Lord? There are a lot of lost people out there. Are we abounding and planning and how to reach them? There are a lot of responsibilities we're entrusted with. Are we abounding and planning how to walk in obedience to them? The Lord calls us to certain disciplines to grow in obedience. Are we abounding and planning how we're going to live in those dis- live out those disciplines so we might grow in our knowledge and love for the Lord? We, we, we have the opportunities to do many things, and by prayerful, scripturally saturated minds, planning and asking the Lord to bless it if it is in His will, we're able to abound in the work of the Lord. You don't just sit there and, woo, this is so wonderful, I'm living with God. You actually have to go and do and see Him work through you. Paul abounded in planning. Now that doesn't mean you should stay up all night and try to figure out what to do. Jesus is the Savior, you're not. You see what, what God might have you do in the present. I'll give you a practical example. If you turn around and look all around you, this thing here is called a building. This is not a church, it's a building. Well, how, what's the purpose of this building? Is it just because we're supposed to show up and be in a building? Why does the Lord have us in this building? Well, how might we use this building to abandon our work for the Lord? Do you know that's not my job to figure out? It's our job collectively. And as we start to look at life through this way, based on love and gratitude, we start to think, how can I sanctify this building? How can I sanctify this money? How can I sanctify this work to bring glory to God? That's how Paul worked. He abounded in his planning, but he abounded in his planning, verse 7, loosely. You see that if the Lord permits? James gives us that principle in James 4.15. He says, if the Lord permits, is how we're, how we're to live. Don't set your plan in stone, set it loosely. Anyone know who David Livingston is? See, there's so many wonderful missionaries that, that seem to have gotten lost in history. I, I, I recommend reading some good missionary biographies. David Livingston is a missionary to Africa. Do you know what his plan was, though? He wanted to be a missionary to China. Do you know what God said? No, not China, buddy. David Livingston didn't say, Oh, that couldn't be the Lord. I'm going to China. I'm glad he went not to China. God used him. He could have gone to China, wouldn't have used them the same way. Paul, Paul was uh, once going on a missionary journey, and, and he went north. Holy Spirit said, nope. Paul went south. Holy Spirit said, nope. Tried west. Holy Spirit said, nope. Keep going west, Paul. All right, boom. Uh, Lord, there's an ocean. You know what happened when he hit that sea? He had a vision of a man. You see, Paul wasn't forcing north or south or east. He was following the Lord's direction. The Lord worked powerfully to bring the gospel across that sea. You can read about that in Acts. It's a great book. You should preach through it sometime. 
I think we just did that, didn't we? We're to be abounding and planning with a looseness that keeps us open to the Lord's leading. You guys tracking with me here? Here we go. Abounding in a lasting work, even in the face of adversity, verse 8 and 9. He says, but I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost for a wide door for effective work has opened to me and there are many adversaries. Do you know our work as Christians isn't to try to get people to pray a sinner's prayer and then just kind of leave them? That, is, that, that was Paul's mission in life. Do you ever notice that? He'd go through all these areas and he would, he would just give a gospel tract to people. He'd ask them if they wanted to pray with him and then he moved on. No. Now there's nothing wrong with that. It's a starting point though. There's a lot of work to be done. Look at, look at Paul's desires to read through his epistles. He wanted to see the saints perfected. He wanted to see people equipped for every good work. Look at 1534. Just turn one page left. Remember what he said there? He says, Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. He wanted everyone to hear the gospel wherever he went, and he wanted to equip the saints to carry on that work. A lasting work. It's called discipleship. It's called a pain in the neck in the flesh. But it's a joy as we walk in obedience to God in it. It's hard work. It takes time. It's emotionally difficult. It is not superficial, but it is lasting, and we need to be abounding in it. It requires persistence, and it requires persistence in the face of adversity. Look at this right here. He says, I keep spinning my pages here. He says, a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. My friends, if it's easy, it's probably not of the Lord. Because when the Lord is going to work, the evil one gets active. If you, if, if you see all sorts of stuff just going so smoothly, sometimes people are like, oh, the Lord is opening doors for me. Careful with that. Be very careful with that. Because we too easily give up when times get hard. Paul abounded in a lasting work even in the face of adversity. And it's what we're called to. Jesus says, go out and make what? Disciples. Do you know what that means? Each and every one of us as a child of God should be discipling somebody. Now, besides the fact that 87.642% of all statistics are made up, got me there? The majority of people I meet who are Christians, they're not discipling people. Do you know why? It's hard. It takes time. Now, who, who do you disciple? You don't have to find a person of a matching age group. Sometimes the Lord, he sticks them in your house and they sleep in rooms in your house. They're called kids. Disciple them. Sometimes you got a neighbor next door. You, know, you preach the gospel. You see where the Lord is working. You disciple. Now, you can't just handpick these people. Sometimes they're just not a lot of fun to disciple. Sometimes they could be parents of yours, and it's, it's a hassle because they think they know better than you at all times. But Paul didn't just look for the fun folks. Watch who he, he works with. He speaks of here, this guy, Timothy. When I say Timothy, you probably think of this young guy, Deep abiding faith in God, just an absolute pleasure to be around. Stoic, steadfast, well-versed in Scripture, just a constant encouragement to Paul, right? It's not Timothy. Watch this, abounding with others. Timothy was a messed up guy. I'll show you that in a second. But he says, when Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he's doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him, help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. Now, you're going to have to read First and Second Timothy to fully unpack this. But from that, we understand that Timothy could be easily intimidated. Dude was a scary cat. Kind of like me, but don't tell anybody. Timothy struggled with passions of the flesh. No, not Timothy. He's in Scripture. Yeah, Paul speaks of that. Timothy wanted to quit the ministry. Did you know that? 
Timothy said, Paul, I'm done. This is too hard. These people are scary. Paul says, come on back. See, now if I was Paul, I'd be like, get out. Give me someone that can work here, please. Timothy, he got ill. Do you know how he probably got ill? From stress. Paul told him, drink some wine, settle your belly. Dude was stressed out, freaked out, and scared. Yeah, mighty man of God. Yeah, mighty man of God. Because Paul didn't leave him there. Paul didn't say, you know what, Timothy? The Lord loves you, but I don't. That's why we can't make these t-shirts. Because it would be sin to carry out that way. He says, I'm struggling, Unsiah, but I'm commanded to love you because you know you and I were not that different. I'm just like you. By grace through faith, I'm saved. So Paul invested in Timothy such that when he sent him, it was like Timothy came. Now watch this last part here. There's this other guy, Apollos. And Paul says, Concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit with you and the brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He'll come when he has opportunity. Paul was an apostle. That means in the church, you can pull rank. You know, if you're an apostle, you can pull rank. You could, Paul could have said, Apollos, listen. I don't know if you know who I am, but my name is Paul, Apostle Paul. Me and Jesus, we, we met on the road to Damascus. He discipled me. He's given me some really important responsibilities. I don't particularly care if you don't want to go. It's time to head out. Is that what he said to Apollos? Now, he told Apollos what he thought he should do, but Apollos was saying, that's not how the Lord is leading me. So Paul's goal was not to see Paul's will done, but whose will done? God's will done. Do you see that? Now, let's close it up and I'll show you what's going on here. This is not some sort of secret to success. This is an example in small part, which we'll unpack for us over the coming weeks, where we're reminded by the Lord to understand who we are in Christ positionally, but then practically how to enjoy the fullness of that relationship. Do you see that? It says, let all that you do be done in love. So follow me through here. How do we abound in the work of the Lord? Have a proper view of reality. Okay? This life isn't, isn't all that matters. What you see with your eyes isn't always truth. It's a distortion at times. Have a view of eternity. Eternal view and perspective. Don't live for the dot, live for the line. Right? Don't store up treasure on earth where wrath and must, moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. It says where your treasure is there, your heart will also be. Store it up in the kingdom for an eternal joy. See, everything is for the Lord's glory. Do you know why the Lord woke you up today? To bring glory to Him. Do you know why the Lord calls you to do what you do? To bring glory to Him. Do you know why the Lord puts people in your lives, even the difficult people, to bring glory to Him? Not so that you can show off on how wonderful you are, but so that you can boast in how wonderful He is. Understand what life really is. We're to understand how we so easily worship idols and understand the love God has for us. Understand who we are in Christ And this is so important. Understand what God wants from us. God isn't a joy robber. You know, someone once asked me years ago, and some of you may remember this question. This lady, it was at church. She says, is it ever okay to take a break from God? Anybody remember that question? Is it ever okay to take a break from God? Don't you ever sometimes feel kind of worn out? Lord, I've been laboring really hard for you. I'm doing a lot of stuff. I'm giving a lot of stuff. I'm... It's just wearing me down. I'm going to take a little bit of a break, like for a week or so, and then I'll be back. Well, if you ever feel that way with the Lord, you're probably not abounding in your labor. You're probably abounding in the flesh. Because fish don't say, is it ever okay to hop out of the water and stop being in the water for a little bit? 
You know what fish do on the beach? Up, 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 right? Do you ever ask, is it ever okay to just stop breathing? It's so much effort to draw breath. No. Is it okay to take a break from the Lord? What's the upside of taking a break from the Lord? As we abide in Him, as we abide in Him, we're able to have the joy He desires for us. As we abound in the work of the Lord, our labor in the Lord will never be in vain. So stop and ask yourself this question. Why does God call us to abound in the work of the Lord? Is it to make us miserable? Or is it to allow us to live lives truly set free? Now what we're going to do, starting next week, if the Lord permits, we're going to start to look in more depth at the law of the Lord. Okay, We're going to start with the Decalogue. We'll stretch out from there. But I trust that we will all see the purpose of God's law isn't to make us miserable. It's to allow us to be joyful. And the problem each and every one of us has is that we break that law based on serving idols in so many ways. We're often blind to it. My goal is that we would all have the joy the Lord desires for us to abound in our work in the Lord so we may have the abundant life Jesus came to give us. He died to set us free. For freedom, Christ has set us free so we can have the joy of walking in obedience to him. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that you would encourage each and every one of us, that you would remind us that we are saved not by how well we work, but how perfectly you have finished the work, Lord Jesus. I thank you for the fact, Lord God, that you are not an earthly parent who we have to seek to win the affections of, but you are a perfect father who is well pleased with us by your work. What a a remarkably freeing truth to understand. When you look at us, you don't shake your head in disgust. You smile in delight. You don't enjoy our sin. You discipline those you love. But positionally, by grace through faith, we are secure with you, the King of all kings, Lord of all lords, the one who made and owns all things. You delight in us. You desire to spend eternity with us. And you invite us in this life even to have an abundant life, to have eternal life. Eternal life is this, that we know you, not just about you, but we live in relationship with you. And through your word, Father, through your law, you show us how to live in an intimate relationship with you. Yet we kick and we fight and we scream and we say, no, no, no. Or we go about it griping in all the wrong way. Lord God, help us. Forgive us for our sin. Restore our relationship with you to a greater and greater level of intimacy. Break up the fallow ground of our heart and rain righteousness upon us. Allow us to have the joy that comes from knowing you are with us right this moment. That you will care for us perfectly. The birds of the air don't need to freak out. And certainly we don't either as your image bearers and children of yours through Christ. Lord, help us live these lives for your glory, for our joy, and for the sake of the lost, so that they may look at us and say, those people are a bit different, and we may say, yes, we are, because our Father is Lord God. He cares for us perfectly. He never leaves us. He guides us in paths of righteousness. We delight in his law because in his law we are able to have greater and greater intimacy. But Lord, if we're honest, we're a people who struggle. We're a people who are worn down. We're a people who go through emotional swings. Lord, we know that, that in this life we will never have perfection. But we also know, Lord Jesus, that you have overcome this world. 
So as we live in this land of the lost, Lord, help us to not live like the lost. Give us the joy you desire for us. Empower us to walk in obedience to you and help us keep our eyes on the prize. Knowing that one day, as Paul has shown us so clearly, when we die and pass through that transition, we enter into your kingdom. We enter into your presence and we await the resurrection of our eternal body to spend it in the new heaven and the new earth. This life is not all there is. It is preparation for all that is to come. And while we wait, Lord Jesus, we thank you for sending the Holy Spirit to dwell in us, to guide us, to teach us, and to encourage us. I pray we will have learned much from this letter, that we will understand what it means to be a body, that we will understand what it means to love, that we will understand how to use our gifts, that we will seek to to not fall into the same traps the Corinthians did, but to learn from their example, for your glory and our joy. Lord Jesus, thank you for loving us. Thank you for dying on that cross in our place. Thank you for rising from the dead and showing us what we have to look forward to. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for choosing us. Thank you, Father, for allowing us to call you Abba, Father. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for never leaving us and guiding us and teaching us. I pray we live lives worthy of the calling we've been entrusted with. Father, we pray all these things in our Lord and Savior's name. Amen.